Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, this morning I have Elizabeth Jane Corbett and it's her debut novel, The Tides Between, which has just been published by Odyssey Books. Welcome to 3CR's Publish or Not, Elizabeth. Thank you. And your official launch of The Tide Between, The Tides Between, is tonight at 7pm at, uh, at the Hawthorne Library. And I should say, for the benefit of the podcast, this is Thursday the 9th of November 2017. Uh, but if you're a listener and you want to attend, you'll have to put your name on a waiting list because I believe it's booked out. Yes, I'm feeling very popular. Mm, that's good. But you're doing a Facebook feed, a live feed of uh, listeners who want to have a bit of a squeeze tonight? Yeah, I've got lots of friends in the UK and I thought it would, including family, and I thought it would just be fun for them to be able to be part of it. So my Facebook author page is www.facebook.com blindslice Elizabeth Jane Corbett and we'll be doing a feed from the start of the speeches. Okay so if you can search Elizabeth Jane Corbett you'll find it tonight. Yes. Okay so uh, before we talk about the characters and the circumstances of the tides between how long has this novel taken you to write and what amount of research was involved? Well I don't <laughs> like to admit how long it took but I started it probably 13 years ago. Mm. It started actually with a midlife crisis I hit a significant birthday and wrote a list of all the things I'd like to have achieved by that stage in my life right. I also wrote a list of the things I had achieved just so you know I'm not totally negative and writing a novel topped the second list fair enough I'd grown up with stories of a novelist in the family a man called John James who wrote historical novels in the 1960s in right. Wales in Wales, in so Wales not, not in Australia. A Welsh okay. historical novelist. So we'll look at that connection with Wales yes. a bit more in a second. So I'd always had it as a bit of a dream. And I'm a librarian, so let's face it, books are everything. Yeah. Stories are everything. Yeah. So I had the midlife crisis, but I didn't have any ideas. I thought that they probably were supposed to just drop from the sky and that one day <laughs> I would wake up and think, that's what my novel's going to be about. Yeah. I was chatting with my husband about it and I through talking it out, I said, what about if I just start doing some research? Yeah. I was a migrant to Australia. In what year? In 1969. Okay. So, so as a five-year-old. Yeah. So immigration was the defining event of my childhood. Sure. But I love historical fiction. So I knew it had to be a historical novel and I knew I wanted to do a migrant novel. And at university, I'd been fascinated by the character of Carolyn Chisholm, who's on our $5 note. So I started with a biography of Carolyn Chisholm by the end of which, to my immense surprise, I had characters forming in my okay. head, which was... Well, which is a great lesson for people listening and thinking, where do stories come from? No, they don't just drop from the sky, but drawing on your background, your experience and developing characters and circumstances from there. Could I just ask, which part of uh, the UK did you come from originally when you... So I was Australia? from Essex. Okay. My dad was an Essex man, an Ilford man. My mum was Welsh, yep. which was uh, why I decided to include... English and Welsh characters in the novel. Just uh, that was the. And just before we get into the novel, I do want to mention something very significant. In 2009, you entered the Bristol Short Story Competition, and among 2,000 entrants worldwide, remembering this is an English short story competition, you won. Yeah. And that was by drawing on your Welsh background, wasn't it? It Tell was. It was. <laughs> mum, mum 
started opening up a lot more about her life once she realised I was writing about Wales. It became a bit of a connection point. And she told me a story of uh, in wartime Wales, of a time in wartime Wales where they stood on the beach and sung their national anthem. And when she told it to me, I just got those spine tingles and I thought, that story needs to be written. And I will say, having read it, your use of metaphor in that is extraordinary. It was quite clear to me that why it won. But moving from that book, now that was 2009, here we are almost a decade later. <laughs> Without going into too much of the, the background, what sort of research have you done? I, I believe you've learned the Welsh language. Yes, and that was an accident. I, I didn't mean to, but I thought I should know a little bit about the language because my Welsh speakers would have spoken Welsh. And I knew that Welsh people formed their sentences differently. And I thought, if I just learn a bit, then I might understand why they're doing that. And I found out there were Welsh classes in Melbourne. I'm now one of the tutors. That's oh, okay. just a well, small plug. Yeah. <laughs> and I turned up thinking, oh, I'll stay a term or two because I'd done Japanese in school and had been pretty hopeless. Oh. So I have no gift for languages, but this language just took me by the heart. Okay. It's a heritage in there. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I couldn't stop. One term became two and three. So the language took you by a heart. Now, moving on to the main character, the protagonist in The Tides Between, I'm talking with Elizabeth, Elizabeth Jane Corbett. Uh, Bridie, she is the protagonist, and we're talking 1841 in Britain. She's about to board which ship to do what? So she's about to board a ship called Lady Sophia. It's a fictitious ship. Okay, it is fictitious. It's a fictitious ship. But based on research. Based on research. And I have ha I've had people ask research the ship actually since they've read it right. because I named I tried to name it so it sounded real uh, she's she's emigrating to Australia on a government assisted immigration program right. which was quite strong in that in that so era she wasn't a convict she wasn't a convict that was what they were doing they were bringing migrants in to support the people already there to provide a workforce it was towards the end of the convict era anyway. We were still bringing some convicts in, but not nearly as many as, as they had. And Victoria was a reasonably new colony, or it wasn't actually a colony, it was part of New South Wales. But what, it was What was it called back then? Port, it was called the Port Phillip District. The Port Phillip District. So it wasn't Melbourne at that stage in 1841? Melbourne was the city. Oh, it was, okay. But they tended to refer to the area as the Port oh, Phillip District, and it okay. didn't become a colony until 1851. So how old is Bridie and what's her family circumstances that have brought her to emigrate? She's 15 and originally she wasn't 15 so that's been changed just as an insight into okay. t in terms of some of the rewrites I've done. She's 15, she's on the cusp of womanhood. Her father has died in tragic circumstances and her mother has remarried a man that she really doesn't like. Not an unusual situation. The stepfather. Quite yeah. a modern situation in yeah. fact. She's, they're emigrating because they haven't, they're poor. That's yeah. why people emigrated. Uh, it was for a second chance. They were told that they would have a better life. And I think in many cases they did. And how does Bridie regard her stepfather, Alf Bustle? You mentioned they don't get on, but what are some of the more, uh, more personal details that she doesn't like about him? He was around before her dad died. So that's one thing she holds against him. He's waiting a, in the wings. Wait, wait, sort of. Yeah. Waiting in the wings. 
he was a neighbour. They lived in a lodging house, a rooming house. Poor people didn't have their own house. They they had a room or two in a lodging house. He was he was a neighbour. Bridie's father had been a musician. Alf was worked in a fruit and vegetable store. So I'm playing with types there. Types. And it didn't it was a few drafts in when I realised that I should play with those types. So Alf is solid, respectable, unimaginative. Her father was a musician. He was mercurial and he loves stories didn't he he adored stories alf doesn't really see the sense in them mm. now you have done a wonderful job of interweaving some of the welsh fairy tales and folk tales on the voyage um, throughout the book and use them as metaphors for what's actually happening in the ship that must have been a monumental task to do that research how did you go about doing that well, I, I just started... Initially, when I first wrote it, Reese was a storyteller. But okay, I... No, no, you Reese, no, Reese is. is the storyteller who Bridie befriends on the ship and he's travelling with his wife, Shan. So they're the Welsh connection. They're the two Welsh characters I wanted to include. Yeah. And they became storytellers because I wanted a creative couple who she could... Bridie could relate to yeah. That had something in common with her dad, but weren't exactly the same. So her dad was Scottish, they were Welsh. Her dad was a theatre musician, they were storytellers, and Reese is a musician, but not not in the theatre. So I wanted them to have that connection, but I didn't initially anticipate Reese's stories would take over quite as much as they did, in fact. He was just a storyteller, and I thought that would be the beginning of the relationship. But the more I wrote, the more I realised that you can't just plonk a story in a novel yeah. without it having a purpose, just to show someone's a storyteller. It's got to reflect or amplify the themes it, of the It does. Characters. And so I slowly began to read the stories with that eye and made Reese's telling of them reflect something of his journey. I also made them speak to Bridie's journey and I also, as you've pointed out, used them metaphorically. So, yes, it was really hard. Yeah, it's very yeah. skillfully done, I've got to say. Yeah. Uh, just in the time we've got left, one of the other fantastic things about your novel is the level of detail about what it was like to be on the ship. And I gather for a lot of listeners who would perhaps think, like me, you know, it's an arduous flight, 24 hours to get uh, go between Europe and Australia... Uh, what were some of the ardours, what were some of the difficulties that these early migrants faced on board a ship like Lady Sophia? For uh, Carolyn Chisholm, that was one of the things she sought to address, I suppose. She yeah. saw the deplorable conditions. So there was no privacy. They were on open decks. So families were in with men and women. They separated them, but there was simply no privacy. They would knock the between decks accommodation up in between voyages. So they oh, okay. they would bring wool back yeah. on one ship and then knock up accommodation. And it wasn't that unlike what the convicts used. And the schedule and the way they cared for people wasn't that unlike what they'd used for the convicts. So it was tight packed. Often the ships the decks were below the the tide line, so they oh. so so there was leakage. Yeah. They didn't have proper glass portholes. They just had scuttle holes, which were just square holes in the side of the ship. So when the sea was high, if it came above the tide line, then water would come in. It couldn't be permanently below the tide line, but part of the deck would have been. If you... 
So aside from the cloistered conditions and um, getting the sense you might even be sinking, it'd be a prime breeding ground for bacteria and disease, was it not? It was. They didn't understand germ theory in those days. And it was a very regulated system. They'd learned a great deal about transportation through the convict system. So they did a lot better, say, than the American migrants who were only on the ship for two weeks and they had a big bigger death toll but yes it was a breeding ground for disease the the voyage took three to five months they had open toilets which were just buckets often so yes it was because you've done a great job of catching the fear of typhus going through the ship and i won't spoil more of the story other than to say that you've done an incredible job of researching this book elizabeth and the book i'm talking about is the tides between by elizabeth jane corbett which is being launched tonight at the hawthorne library that's the 9th of november 2017 Uh, thank you very much for joining us here this morning elizabeth Thank you for the invite. Oh, very pleased to have you here. And now we're throwing back to David McLean and his guest this morning. Yes, and I'm just thinking of all those characters that have dual citizenship on board. (laughs) (laughs) Good topical joke. (laughs) But anyway, a narrative, Ewan, and you'd know this, is a story. But it can be developed by focusing on characters, institutions, and even on premierships. Conrad Marshall addresses all those components in his account of a season with the Richmond Football Club. And the book is entitled, naturally enough, Yellow and Black. So, Conrad, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much for having me. You're a football supporter. You're a Richmond supporter? Yeah, well, I've got to confess, it's on public radio. I grew up a Richmond supporter, but since working for Victoria University since 2002, I got caught up in the doggy story. You can't can't change allegiances halfway through. People tell me that, but what about Ron Barassi? That's that's your story. What we've got got is uh, this notion of story that Conrad has used uh, fairly early on in the book. There's an exercise visualising the game before it's played, as in a story left on the field. What's going on there? So uh, Damien Hardwick this year as the coach really ramped up storytelling. It became uh, what he wanted to hang his hat on as a, as an orator, as, as the guy who has to motivate his players before every game. And so before every match, he had this new device where he would bring in an A3 picture and it might be a photograph, it might be a statement, it might be a cartoon, but it always had some theme that he could riff on and sort of talk to his players about um, in order to get them to play the way he wanted them to that day. So, for instance, against um, your dogs, Ewan, the, the picture was of a, uh, a honey badger and the players are sitting there looking at it going, why is, why is there a picture of a honey badger on the wall? And so he goes into this spiel about how the honey badger, pound for pound, is the fiercest creature on earth. And it can take down much bigger opponents in the animal kingdom by biting and scratching and attacking the underbelly and the throat and just being wow. mean and vicious. And that was what he wanted to see from the tigers out there that day. So that's, that's just one example. But he had one for every single game. But it's also significant uh, significant in, in terms of how you're putting and structuring this book in terms of how a story is put together because you focus on the stories of individuals as a means of constructing this narrative over the course of the year. So, for example, you've got Brendan Gale, the CEO, and his story, which takes us into the history in some ways of uh, the Richmond Football Club. Yeah, yeah, look, I, and maybe that's just... Uh, the journalist in me, but uh, I have heard somebody describe the book as um, 
48 feature stories or feature articles rather than 48 mm. chapters. So I like to see it as um, taking a really granular approach to the project. I wanted to examine every facet of a football club that I could. So there's a chapter on the girl who uh, assists with development and welfare in order to sort of scaffold these young players and take them from being boys into professional athletes. There's a chapter on the president, Peggy O'Neill, and her background as um, a coal miner's daughter in West Virginia. But then there will also be chapters on the mindfulness coach or the defensive line coach. But you can't tell a story unless you have a character around which to base it because it's the character with whom we identify. Mm, and profile stories are often the, the easiest ones to, to write. So that's why it was nice to be able to tell the story of an entire season through the eyes of all these different people across the club. And the narrative, I guess, is just it was simple for me. It's the timeline of a season that's that's laid out. Well, like, that's that's the know. other thing, and I'm just wondering then when the uh, season took over from the storytelling because you obviously set out in 2016 and Richmond were 13th on the ladder, um, and then was the expectation there that they would win the premiership? It's funnily enough, when we started in uh, at the beginning of 2016, you'll remember they, the Tigers had just come off three final series, albeit for losses in elimination finals, but they looked good. Their whole internal slogan, in fact, was next level. We're going to take this to the next level. So they thought they were primed for something, but then the season went pear-shaped very, very quickly. And so I just remained around the club kind of observing, taking notes in case there was some future project that could be put together. And sure enough, the, the club actually allowed me back in 2017 and I'm still sort of surprised by that. Um, given that they the, let you back in. Well, yeah, the, their last game in 2016, they lost by 113 points, you know, an utter capitulation. They finished 13th on the ladder. They were very poor and they let me come back. And this time with a guarantee that I would publish a book no matter what happened on the field, whether it was a premiership or a wooden spoon. But I'm just wondering when the premiership expectation overtook the narrative of the book you were putting together. Given that halfway you... through. Yeah, halfway through 2017, it became very clear that there were serious results being put on the board. And, um, and again, this was sort of, it, it was just done for me. By the characters in the story, you know, Damien Hardwick, one of those pictures that I mentioned, I think it was before a, a game against the Greater Western Sydney Giants that they won. His picture was a photo of him looking like the Fonz with two thumbs up, wearing this green uh, jumper that had the word "Why not?" Um, words "Why not?" and a question mark on the front, and his wife had bought it for him. And he wears it around and just laughs. And that was his story before the game. Why not us? It's time to start believing. And as you say, part of the uh, nature of the book is to look in into the infrastructure of the club. And there are so many other elements. I mean, going back to Brendan Gale, CEO, and the history. I mean, you had a club that was in debt uh, and looking at sort of poverty. And, Extinction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so how do you, well, how did he turn things around? Was there any particular 
approach he took, do you think? Oh, I think he would say he, he just brought a, an all-of-club approach, a, a positivity, a very, um, a very strict financial discipline, um, an understanding that they needed to right the ship before they could move forward. And I think he put a lot of those successful blocks in place long before the, the premiership this year. But it also speaks to the change in development that has occurred in AFL clubs in terms of having to have a professional approach. I mean, I'm back in the good old days of the VFL, mm. uh, and, and it was sort of the local club. Now it's a professional operation, and as you've mentioned already, you had people like uh, Bronwyn Doig, is that how yes. you pronounce her name? Yep. And taking an holistic approach to the welfare of the players and their prospects after the game. So looking at be- the story beyond the game. Oh, absolutely. There's, um, that was one of the things that shocked me most, I think, about going into the club. You expect it to be this place where men are pumping iron and sort of going out and running, uh, running time trials and you know, really focusing on this hyper-masculine culture, but it was a very um, positive, sort of vulnerable, touchy-feely space. Hmm. Um, well, you get into that in one of the stories. I mean, Brandon Ellis's account that you offer in there, which he allowed you to um, put into print, hmm. because a lot of the stories the players would be telling would have been sort of more on a personal level to other members. But there is a point behind that storytelling. Yeah. in many ways what is it well it's connection it's um it's breeding this sort of culture of openness amongst the players the thing you're referring to was called the the triple h sessions and they were brand new this year and they were remarkable a player would get up in front of his 44 mates and, and 10 coaches and tell three stories one of a hardship in his life one of a hero from his life and one of a highlight from his life and these stories often reduced the person telling them to tears the the people uh, sitting there listening to them to tears but it bred a connection between the group so do you think other clubs will be getting copies of this book to try and emulate <laughs> the... I worry. I worry that I've given away the, the secret the sauce. Secret, because know. there are all sorts of management techniques. You mentioned another one, peer review, that other mm. clubs have tried to use. I mean, it was obvious in the grand final, Adelaide and its approach. in the. In, so there are contrived approaches mm. where people are trying to tell a story when it's contrived, it never works, really. Well, it's interesting you say that because I think one of the most um, shocking things about uh, Richmond and the way that they united this year and performed is that it almost was contrived in a way. You know, they, they went away. Hardwick went to um, a leadership course at Harvard. They brought in professional mentors. They ramped up a, a mindfulness program with a, an expert, a woman named Emma Murray, Emma Murray who yeah. came in. Um, they had a new leadership consultant, Shane McCurry, come in and do these weekly sessions. So in some ways, it was a very forensic process. It was like, let's address this notion of relationships and bringing everyone together. And let's set out a really strict discipline, a path that we want to take. And and then it came off. You know, it wasn't this organic thing that just came to the fore. Oh, I want to be more connected. Let's let's do it. It was But people have conscious. to willingly subscribe to it to mm, make it work. They do. And I think probably the example you mentioned, Brandon Ellis, is a really important one because he was the first to do it. And if his example if his session hadn't been as moving as it was if it hadn't been as raw and honest 
Well, who knows whether the stories by the other players that came to follow would have been. Had the same effect. Yeah. There's also a darker side that you hint at in the book. There's all the positive, uh, uplifting elements, but there is a darker side to football. Uh, One line, the players are all temporary custodians of the club. And I read that as them virtually being expendable. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I I remember some of the players describing what they had there uh, as a brotherhood, but you've got to remember that five or six of those players are no longer there. They were delisted. They're they're gone. And you Uh, mentioned players being traded, Josh Caddy for Brett Delidio. That's Uh, right. and, And so you are, at one moment, a member of a club that has bonded together, united, and the next, you're out. That's right. Yeah, and it's. I think that's just the, the harsh nature of the reality that they're in, but it makes it all the more surprising that they're able to connect in that way. There's also uh, reference to uh, Barnes' hit in one of his uh, <laughs> games, a primal response to a heated moment. I mean, he took out two players, rather. Yeah. Viciously. Did. There is he that. And, and, I mean, you get the, the, the edge, the, the, the fine line, when they are taught how to take somebody out legitimately Cochin's hit on Dylan Shield, yeah. for example. Yeah, that's right. I think I saw a lot more of that as well in um, in 2016. I mentioned the, the change in Damien Hardwick and um, the speeches that he gave throughout the previous year. Uh, he was. It seemed like he was praying for blood in, in his uh, pre-game talks. He wanted them up and dominant and over the opposition and he, he talked in one speech about wanting to see stretchers coming off the ground you know he was he, he was more like Barassi of you know 1977 he was vitriol um, and this year no he was he was a jokester he was a prankster he was the guy with his arm around everyone completely you know radical shift mm, right also then this notion of um, what one has to do to be a good sports writer. I mean, there's some lovely lines you, you use. Um, Cochin slings his body forward, splitting a pack like a sharpened axe on a hollow log. Um, the ability to uh, paint these pictures, what do you have to do to be a good sports writer in that regard? Um, probably bring a little bit of a cinematic eye, I would think, and, and read other really great sports writers so um i would uh borrow stylistically from people like greg baum um michael gleason you know any of the great um age sports writers jake nile who's now with fox sports you know these guys have been doing it for a long time and i've been reading them for a long time so i'm just obsessed with putting it on paper in a in a way that's as good as they are before we end because we're going to run out of time the club and the the, v, uh, the AFL also serves a social purpose. I mean, um, you've got the Laguntas program at uh, Richmond. Uh, what is that? And what purpose does it serve? So the um, the Laguntas program is part of uh, the Corangamaji Institute, which um, is a Wurundjeri word for grow and emerge, and it's um, it's an indigenous leadership centre that's um, basically part of the club. It's it's quite strange, really. You've got this um, AFL football club, and you have a full time school within its um, doors, just sort of helping kids from all across the country to as the name suggests, grow and emerge and um, become better in that whatever way they can. Another little story, uh, you've got the supporters volunteering and you've got one character, Shane Harris. It's giving purpose and dimension 
Yeah, football clubs could not exist without volunteers, and that that might sound strange. We would assume it in amateur football, but in professional football, but it's too. providing something in return. Oh yeah, these people. and it gives them something back. They get to wear the colours, walk around the rooms. You know, they might be washing the Guernseys, but they feel special um, just being allowed into yeah. that inner sanctum. And you mentioned Hooli's connection with the Islamic community as well. Yeah, much more devout. He's always described as being um, the most devout Muslim in um, in AFL, but I didn't really realise that until I got to the club and learned the way that he has a, a little room off to the side so that he can go and pray to Mecca five times a day, you know, interrupting his training to do that. Um, yeah. You know, how they have to set aside a room at the ground so he can do it at the MCG. Well, unfortunately, Conrad, we are going to have to end the interview there. We're running out of time. A Season with Richmond, Yellow and Black by Conrad Marshall, and it's a Slattery Media Group release. And Ewan, your guest was? Today, Elizabeth Jane Corbett with The Ties Between. And coming up now, we have Rumination.